the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. So, um, one of my colleagues was here a few days ago. This was just such a touching moment in a way and a reminder. And he told me about five minutes before the show started, he told me this story that um, had no interest to me, moved me not at all. And I looked at him after he was done and I said, why are you telling me this? And he said the most endearing thing ever. He said, because you're my friend. What a nice thing to hear and, and to be reminded of. And I think of that whenever I see the Holmans. They are my friends. And um, you can't have enough in this town or in this world and in this life. So friendship is so important, especially over this past year. My gosh, it's a delight to welcome back into the studio Hugh Holman, former mayor of Tempe, attorney, and Lewis Holman, his, uh, his son, who is the managing director of Insight Analytics. InsightAnalyticsLLC.com is their website. Nice to see you two friends again. It's great to see you, Seth. We feel warm and welcome. If you are on hold, stay there for just a few moments because the Hallmans will entertain your calls with me on anything. Looks like we have some calls on liberals and white privilege. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. But first, their stock in trade every Tuesday has been giving us an overview of where we stand with the Wuhan virus. Where do we stand with the Wuhan virus? So again, we're coming off of the big spike that peaked in early January, and we're again seeing the same pattern of of continual broad improvement. Uh, Total inpatient COVID bed utilization is down a third from last week, falling from about twenty five hundred occupied, sorry, twenty three hundred occupied beds down to fifteen fifteen as of yesterday. Um, Meaning of all hospital beds, 17.6% of them are occupied by COVID patients without counting surge beds. So we're only counting exactly the way the Department of Health wants to pin the governor down and make it more painful. So, uh, and overall utilization then, we're sitting at about 86% of all beds occupied, um, which then is... By all things. By all things. Near that mythical 90% mark that we should be so terrified for because it signals that the end is nigh. Right. Yeah, that thing. Or that hospitals are making money. Right. <laughs> so no, they're uh, like hotels, which it, they are yeah. like hotels. Yeah. Behinds in beds. You don't have bodies in beds. You're not making money. That's we're right. also you can't seeing, stay open. We're also seeing a uh, trend in lower death counts. Uh, uh, you know, week over week, with more sort of uh, pooling over time in those areas now past where we had sort of the largest spikes. So a lot of what we're seeing now is in reality still backfill from those earlier spikes. So what is the point, gentlemen, of vaccines if Anthony Fauci says today, even if you're vaccinated, there are still things you're not going to be able to do in society? For example, indoor dining theaters, places where people congregate because of the safety of society. What was the point of this interest in vaccines? And could there be a greater spokesman? not to get a vaccine than Anthony Fauci when he says stuff like that? Well, how about the entire uh, medical uh, industrial complex that's now created? Uh, We have folks who are telling us that notwithstanding all of the measures we've taken, 
that uh, we will not be able to open anytime soon. Our lives cannot go back to normal, even if one's vaccinated. Heck, in my case, I've had COVID-19 and now been vaccinated. Uh, and uh, I'm still reading things. And uh, you're wearing a mask. And well, I'm wearing one, a mask. Uh, it, it, no, yeah, one. That's all right. Oh, no, I have two to carry just in case. I actually wore two today just to show how ridiculous it was in my case. But uh, we have this beautiful post that you supplied me, Seth. Carry on until it's gone. Yeah. Even after vaccination, you have to wear masks, wash your hands, and uh, physically separate. We call it socially separating, but of course it's physically distancing, not socially distancing. And so as a result, one wonders why. I think Lewis and I have a, a thesis that we want to uh, put forward, and that is... Uh, not ever wasting a crisis. Yeah. So we've heard this phrase uh, first made popular by Rahm Emanuel, right? First chief of staff to Barack Obama, never let a crisis go to waste. And he was stealing that concept. But yes, yeah, any, but any good political staffer knows that uh, when you've got a crisis, it's the opportunity to demonstrate leadership and, and uh, brilliance. And in this instance, we've got COVID-19 that is not only a crisis that continues, but it's one that seems to never go away. Well, that was my update to it. I was saying it's no longer – you say it's both. I was saying it was, you're probably right. I was saying it's no longer never let a crisis go to waste. It's now become never let a crisis go away. And so well, – it's, it's also sort of the nature of, of this where you, know, you would think that most crises are sort of these one-off rare events. I like to think of hurricanes or natural disasters, Hurricane Katrina being a big one when I was growing up. Sure. Um, but this has really become an endemic, and so it's different from most crises, you know, in, crises in that way. Um, and so there's sort of that layer of it as to why this is becoming permanent. It's just not going away. You know, COVID is global. It is endemic to humanity, and no amount of vaccination is going to purge it from our ranks. Well, we three wrote an editorial piece that we tried to place three and a half, almost four months ago, explaining that there were two theories or, or themes of people's approach to the pandemic. One was to understand you needed to control it so it wouldn't overwhelm hospital systems, but ultimately it would make its way through the population. And the other was that we were going to control it and stop its spread, period. And, of course, our view, still based in science, is that's impossible. And as a result, it is now, as Lewis used the proper word, endemic to the world and exists. And the likelihood that it ever is gone is near zero. And worse, we have instituted human um, activities to try to slow the spread or, in some people's view, stop it. And those very activities, the barriers we're trying to present to spread of this virus, have, in fact, caused mutations to start existing. There are now people, and Lewis, go ahead, talk about the tweet you saw that was nearly oh, made our heads explode. Sure, sure. I was, you know, just browsing around the internet, uh, and I, I, I saw some moron commenting that we couldn't have people roaming the streets freely who are in the age 20 to 55 category because, you know, allowing the virus to spread through that age pool would just be a seeded ground for mutation, and that that would be bad. And then more, more, you know, because of the risk of more mutation, we can't possibly open schools yet. And it just, oh, it felt so defeating to read something like this because you, you, you're looking at someone who, despite having almost every concept presented in front of them correctly, somehow puts them together in such a way as I to completely right the miss the point. Yeah, yeah, right. And so here we have the, uh, the, the point that we make is that the barriers that we have to the spread are the things that are uh, importing and actually uh, 
enhancing the likelihood of variation in the virus. Why is that? Because the virus that began to get spread was being spread among populations without much challenge to it. The second we put up barriers to it, uh, variations take place constantly and continuously. Folks, I think, get mixed up about that, that somehow mutations take place only in certain circumstances. It's constant. And those that survive, meaning they can survive in the current environment, then get passed along. And those that survive in an environment where we've put in barriers to their passage are only those that have successfully been able to overcome the barriers. Right. So those are the things that are most likely to spread and may be more virulent. Uh, the, the challenge being it's not that uh, the, the measures we're taking will halt variation. It's, in fact, the likely source of variation that is now... Let's go back to the theme, allowing folks to say, oh, but wait, we only have a vaccine for the current variant, and now there's this B117 in England, and there's B1351 in South Africa, and there's P1 in Brazil. Lord God, we cannot now go out and mix it up because we'll spread these variants. And again, though, it's know- interesting we're allowed to use those countries' names with the virus all of a sudden. <sighs> Very, yes, yes. That, a little that, interesting. That, that's right. Anyway, sorry, Lewis. No, no. So, so you have to understand that what we're talking about is the regime of selective pressure that's on the virus at any given time, and so the way that the the, the sort of mutation occurs and, and and will function, as you were saying, is that those samples of the virus that replicate and survive and are are thriving right now are those that are best suited to deal with the current landscape of pressures we have put on it, which is extensive social distancing, which means it is more likely to transfer with minimal contact, more masking, able to get around barriers or or otherwise easily transfer. And those are going to be the subcategory of all living viruses that then survive and pass on their, their genetic material. And consequently, the broader samples of all virus in the future will reflect those traits more thoroughly that can overcome our protective measures. So even the variants of the flu, the pneumonia, other kinds of things that are currently in the human population, all will have to develop in order to survive the kinds of uh, mechanisms that overcome the various barriers that we're putting in place. Never let a crisis go away. I have talked about, you mentioned the medical industrial complex. I've talked about the crisis industrial complex that the media and the left give us. There's a variant of it that's a Marxist um, notion called the permanent revolution. And I think that it has a lot of applications to what we're talking about. Let me do this as we go to break because I want to pick up on the reasons why. Why is there an investment in this? And then I want to get to our callers, Hal and David, and anyone else who wants to ring in on anything. 602-508-0960. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hugh Hallman, and the other he is Lewis Hallman, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're on hold, we'll get to you. We just want to uh, clear out a few more issues here, a few more Augie and Stables before we go forward. Uh, part of this show, portions of this hour, are brought to you by Balance of Nature. One daily dose gives you 31 different fruits and veggies, 10 servings of those 31 different fruits and veggies, all potent, powerful stuff from blueberries and papaya to carrots and garlic and spinach and wheatgrass, tens of thousands of vital nutrients. It's a fantastic product for your health, your energy, and most important of all, boosting your immunity and keeping your immunity up in Adam. It's kept me healthy and not sick for over a year. I attribute it all to balance of nature, and they have a great deal helping you acquire it as well. Free free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order. 
of their fruits and veggies. Go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. One daily dose, and you are good to go. Hugh and Lewis Hallman are guests. Um, we were talking about the whys, but before we got into the why, the why, W-H-Y, the why of the permanent revolution, the crisis industrial complex, the um, never letting a crisis go away ethic that we now seem to be living in, I, I have a few theories on it. I'd love to hear yours, but also the cost, right, the price tag these things come with. There's an investment. Um, we, we're all familiar with Eisenhower and the military industrial complex. There's profiting to be made off these things, isn't there, Hugh? Well, we start with Eisenhower's warning in his farewell speech that we needed to take care of the uh, military-industrial complex. Lewis did the math and uh, figured out currently we're spending— So currently uh, in 2020, the total defense expenditure in the United States was $931 billion, which is a lot of money, but represents just about uh, 4% of our GDP, our, the total— Roughly the total amount of economic activity in the U.S. And we have, we have, by the way, spent higher percentages and proportions on our military. Sure. We have before, yes. Yeah, but, but the point is that, of course, with that number, which we've been warned about by the left yep. for decades, yep. Yep. Um, contrast that, that that's a number that is entirely spent by government because right. we don't arm ourselves against Iran. Uh, and so the federal government, uh, primarily a little bit of state money, is spent on national defense. Uh, is that's all? That's all the spending. Less than a trillion is the answer. That's correct. Yep. But then our healthcare industrial yep. complex, which we've been working to build uh, and overbuild massively for the last few decades, is now running at uh, three point eight trillion dollars, or roughly eighteen percent of GDP. Mm-hmm. So, so we form, it's, uh, this thing the left told us about how we spend more on military than any other uh, social good is just not true. We spend more on health by a factor of about three. Right. We, we also spend a lot more on health than many other countries right. do, right. both as a, in, uh, as a percentage of our GDP and in, absolute, or in, in uh, relative terms as well. Mm-hmm. So most, most other places spend about, uh, I should say most other wealthy places spend about 10% of their GDP. One of the things that we don't, and this is always a, a really interesting sort of political fight constantly, um, is that we have a lot more of sort of the high-end experimental type of work in the U.S., and that's one of the reasons you see higher overall health care costs here. So we spend about, what, 12 to 15 to 18 percent of our GDP on right. any given year? We also, have a, we also have a lot more of a, a, a very much more bespoke health care yeah, system. Sure. You, get a lot, you get a lot more picking and choosing of, of what works best for the patient rather than sort of a lot of the more standardized uh, uh, systems in other countries. Yep. Then uh, I think you're right to find or define the crisis uh, industrial complex. And this year, 365 days in, has uh, rounded up just about... Six trillion dollars. That includes the one point nine that we think is going to get get spent here pretty quick. So think about that one point nine for a moment. The one point nine trillion, which is we're told has to be spent because of COVID. And you look at the crud that's in this, and some of it isn't crud. Maybe Uh, it should just be dealt with differently, like foreign aid. Maybe I mean I'm I'm open minded on foreign aid. I just don't think it has anything to do with the, the COVID crisis. But when you put in $50 million for family planning uh, and you put in $1.5 million for Chuck Schumer's uh, uh, International Bridge and you put in $1.5 billion for Amtrak, 
I mean, this has nothing to do with COVID. This is an assault on common sense. This is a Christmas tree, and folks are hanging ornaments on it and blaming COVID. And that's really the fundamental point here is not only don't waste the crisis, make sure it goes on permanently so you can continue to use it as the basis for this kind of ridiculous spending. It is the best means to hide things. So not not only that, right, but there's there's also two kind of parallel phenomena that I see going on here. The first is that people have now gotten used to, in this last year, running that $6 trillion deficit. And so now it's going to be much harder whenever someone comes out with whatever the new emergency is, say it's a climate change boodoggle. Well, as long as you can claim that people are going to die, people were dying during the COVID emergency when we spent all this money. Why are those deaths less important now? And so it will be very, very easy, I fear, for people to keep arranging for these massive and ever-growing sums of money to be spent on whatever crisis they point out, just because we've already set the precedent that we're willing to do so. And so while we're worried about uh, climate change being the source of uh, Armageddon for humanity. So that's, that's, that's the first issue, though, if I may. The second issue is that there's also a set now, now that we have these expenditures having gone out, every, and we, we have all of these new institutional pressures uh, uh, and these new sort of cottage industries where you know, whether you're now running your failing uh, uh, med spa as a testing center now and, and making money hand over fist or whatever else you happen to be doing. Uh, uh, Actually, it was a women's health clinic. My doc. bad. Yes. Sorry. Uh, uh, then what we're seeing is people who has incentives are now aligned with prolonging this crisis right. just fi- you know, financially. Right. Right? right. So not only do we have these sort of budgetary concerns, but the longer this goes on, right. the more ossified these pressures have gotten. Sure. And you've got people who demonstrated by the fact that they got trillions of dollars put into a budget to uh, fill their pockets, uh, demonstrating their political power, now clearly in a position to continue that use of the federal fisc for their personal benefits. So this uh, crisis industrial complex, which is driven much by the healthcare industrial complex, have all of the connections made to continue this. And the point I was going to make, Lou, is just that we've talked about uh, or heard talked about uh, the uh, climate change crisis, that we are going to pass the point of no return and we'll slip into Armageddon for humanity. And there's a real possibility that the U.S. federal government will tip over in its ability to recover from the overexpenditure of funds and the inability to save this country's fiscal ruin because we have gone into a point where, as I think back during, I hate it, folks, I know I get in trouble with my sons when I talk about Ronald Reagan's era, uh, $483 billion budget deficit, which was great worry and how to cut that. $483 billion is now not a rounding error in the current uh, crisis industrial uh, complex. It's one fourth or one fifth of what we're about to spend. Exactly right. On just the crisis. I was, it's funny, your your brain went there, Hugh. I was thinking Reagan's last budget, I think it was $1.1 trillion, the budget, the budget. We're now doing 1.9 as just a throwaway Correct. because of something blue states have done to themselves. Okay, let's, let's not put too fine a point on it. South Dakota doesn't need this money. Florida doesn't need this money. New York and California need this money. Why do South Dakotans have to pay for the decisions of Californians that they were warned about not having to make and didn't need to make? The ex- it's infuriating. The, the export of tax dollars from red states to blue states. It's in. Infuriating. We'll take your calls when we come back. 602 508 0960. 
This is kind of the music you would see Hugh Hallman dancing to at Studio 54 back in the day, a little Casey and the Sunshine Band. You know, I can dance to anything. I know you can. I know. You really are an amazing dancer. I walked into an event once, folks, with my girlfriend, and he just took her, and I didn't see her for the next, like, 20 minutes. They were just cutting a rug all night because I can't dance like that. That's not true. You can dance brilliantly. Not really. 602-508-0960. I can't dance. How could I? I can't dance. Why should I? I can't dance. Merci beaucoup. Hal is in Prescott. Hal is on with the Hallmans. Hello, hey, Seth. Thanks for taking the call. You bet. And, uh, the Holmans, thank you so much. You bet. Uh, thank you, Hal, for your patience. Just some quick... Oh, hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, just some quick observations. Uh, in order to save us from bad weather 100 years from now, the global warning people are going to drown us in a sea of red ink. That's uh, kind of number one. Number two, just uh, from what you said, it sounds like we spend more money just on healthcare bureaucracy than on defense, if you look at the numbers. That's just speculation on my part, but I w- wouldn't be surprised if it's true. And most importantly, the people who are telling us that white privilege is a thing, and it's all we need to think about. In other words, they want us to think about our skin color and not the content of our character. What they're telling us and what we need to ask them is, are you saying that Martin Luther King was wrong? And if he was, what are the consequences of that? And what did we do before Martin Luther King came along? We thought about skin color. And so um, I'd love to have your thoughts on you know, asking people, is Martin Luther King or was Martin Luther King wrong when he, when he told us? There's a very the ugly – I'll turn it over to the Hallmans in a minute. I'll just show you this one perspective with you, Hal. There's a very ugly thing that has happened over the last five years with invoking Martin Luther King um, it, it, to someone who wants to talk about white privilege. Um, they will tell you that white people have no business quoting Martin Luther King. And I, I just think it's a very ugly thing, also self-defining. But I'll let you guys handle this issue as you— I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. So the the best kind of argument I've ever really heard about these issues is that when we're sort of talking about this with someone who, who thinks in terms of, of white privilege, is that, that the world that we want to see in some sense is one in which— uh, skin color plays as much of, of, of a role in our lives and in our thinking as does hair color, right. right? It's ludicrous for us to think of, you know, someone not being hired because they've got brown hair right. or, you know, not wanting... I mean, I guess it's a little less strange to think about maybe not wanting to date someone if they're not blonde or, you know, we have these weird preferences, sure. but whatever. Sure. Uh, and so uh, if, if that's the goal, though, if we want to think about race with as much context and gravity as we currently think about hair color... Is the way that we get there to emphasize race more in our thinking and in our our dialogue and in our, our understanding and in our connection with the world or less? And to me, the the answer is self-evidently that it has to be less. Well, and certainly you were raised— three generations of it. This is really interesting yeah, hearing that. Go I was ahead. raised by parents who were uh, cutting-edge, colorblind, and broke down racial barriers. So my mother— um, Lewis's grandmother became a student at what is now Arizona State University. Uh, her roommates were of color, Hispanic and African American. Uh, unusual. It was a teacher's college at the time. My mother and her roommates broke out of the dorms and decided to get instead housing separate from the university because it was so expensive to live at the university. So they uh, would get housing in Tempe. 
my mother, as the apparent Anglo, would go in and seek uh, a room with or an apartment with the landlord and cut the deal, and then they would all move in. And not long after, the landlord would challenge them and try to throw them out or actually actually complete that process and throw them out because her roommates were African-American and Hispanic. They spent uh, their time as undergraduates breaking down the racial barriers in the city of Tempe in housing uh, before 1951. They also worked to end the discrimination of the swimming pool in Tempe. In fact, African-Americans weren't discriminated against because there were so few of them. It was Hispanics couldn't go swimming in the swimming pool. And my mother and her roommates broke down those barriers. And from all three of them, I learned the lesson that the color of one's skin should not matter a hoot and it should be the content of one's character. In the present day, uttering those kinds of phrases gets you into a great deal of trouble. As a white male, I get the fact that I've certainly had some benefits that others might not have gotten because of the color of their skin, even in my generation. But I don't think that means that we should work to try to enhance the attention paid to skin color because it only likely comes to bad ends. I think if you want to get beyond race, you have to get beyond race. Lewis's point, maybe we can come back on this. It's, it's a deep divide in our country now. It's a, deb- a, de- a deep cleavage in our society. Um, let's come back on it. We'll be right back. Carry on, wayward son. Not something Hugh has ever had to say to Lewis Hallman. Um, Lewis, just on the break, we were continuing this conversation among the three of us that Hal brought up uh, regarding race in American society. And you had a, a, a slightly in, uh, slightly different and very interesting take on it I wanted to just share with the audience, if well, you don't mind. It's very striking to me that we're, we're having this conversation at all, and in some sense that this whole conversation about what is the role of race in society is, is uniquely American because virtually every other nation on earth is founded in explicitly ethnic terms, right? Poland is the land of the Poles, Slavs, literally. You know, right? And even even in talking about, you know, forging new nations or or the disillusionment of them, we still talk about them even geopolitically in ethnic terms. Why do some people think that Palestine should have a right to exist? Well, because the ethnicity that is the Palestinians need a home, purportedly. And so... These questions really are sort of central in the concept of of country and nationhood everywhere else in a way that they just are not here. And so ours really is the only place where we have to really negotiate this kind of really real multicultural equilibrium because everywhere else it's a very easy answer. The culture exists for the benefit of those who built the nation, that is to say, us, the ethnic in-group. And it obviously accrues benefits to that in-group, else we wouldn't bother having the culture. And so as we look at American culture and Americanism, if indeed there is such a thing, where other countries have a who-are-we-for answer built into them by their very definition almost, you know, we have a much rockier and less clear, I think, answer of who we are and what we want to be and who our culture is for, particularly as we are still one of the only very, very attractive spots to immigrants on any corner of the world. And we have been for the last 200 years. I had a uh, caller from Jamaica yesterday. Milton was his name. He comes here. He becomes an American. Part of your point is I can't go to France or Jamaica and become a Frenchman or a Jamaican. Correct. Not in the sense that they can come here and become an American. Right. From France or Jamaica or anywhere else in this country. And that is one of the unique things about this country, too, isn't it? Your point about immigration. Bill Bennett talks about the um, Gates test. Every country has gates. You know, Mm -hmm. 
which way do people run when the gates are open? Do they run in or do they run out? Sure, okay. Um, they run in here, even when the gates are shut or closed. They right. do everything they can to get into this country, this systemically racist country, we're told. It's kind of a fabu- fabulous thing, isn't it, that you have people from it, South America, Central America, and Africa, and Asia trying to get do everything they can to get into a systemically racist country. You know, to, to the degree that people vote with their feet, mm-hmm. I've always found that phenomenon right. extremely puzzling right. to me. That if, if, if indeed the West is grounded in this original sin of racism, as we are constantly told, then you would expect those that are the victims of these sins to not want to move here as desperately as possible. That's right. So we have a multi- multicultural society that was based on the notion that people could come here. Uh, in fact, your point about France, Seth, is a great one. France is now roiling in challenges right. because it has been effectively uh, invaded, in their view, uh, by the Moors. This is the, the Moorish invasion that occurred in Spain right. Actually, and that the Spanish fought off. It's now Spain and, and France are, are dealing with these things, as is Germany. As and is Londonistan. That's so, correct. But what's <laughs> exactly. that really, Melanie uh, Phillips wrote a book called Londonistan. There are yes. no-go places because of this phenomenon in, in parts of London. That's correct. And what's fascinating, though, about the French case in particular is that France itself, the very idea of French is a very modern construct because about 150 years ago, you didn't just speak French in French. You spoke Gascon or Aquitaine or any of the other local regional languages. And so a great part of what being French is in recent years is this constructed thing in part to get over all of these regional ethnic differences that so plagued it from centralizing and and, and stopped it really from becoming a great unified continental power. I haven't fully come to terms with a point Dennis Prager has made. But one of his points was when we talk about nationalism in this country, and there was a renewed talk of it over the last several years, he said in his travels around the world, and Hugh, you're probably as well-traveled as he is, um, he said one of the most divisive things in other countries is their lack of nationalism, too much tribalism, in other words, not a unified view of a people. Now, I know this is separate from the race issue, but in his example— it is warring races that create the tribal problems that nationalism would cure. A sense of nation would cure racial division. Well, and they said, but I, w- I would disagree with them in the that. The left, uh, of course, I, doesn't I, want this argument, so they talk about white nationalism, yes. which is a totally different thing. We're so, not talking about that. But I, th- I think I disagree with Dennis in that might, my yeah. sense is other nations have a sense of nationhood precisely for the reasons Lewis was articulating, that there is a very large, certain great in-group based in the culture, and that sense of uh, um, uh, patriotism toward the culture is patriotism towards the nation. In contrast, the United States has a, a national identity that is generally independent of race. Correct. And that is not appreciated right. by folks who now attack it, that there is a sense of nationalism being white, as you point, nationalists. They have made it that. That's They correct. have taken our national anthem, funny thing to call it, and made it about race. It never was. That's correct. And, and so many things that we talk about well, certainly are flavored by uh, the founding cultures, which were Germanic and uh, Anglo-Saxon, but by the same token, they have been flavored by lots of new 
different immigrants from the Germans and the Italians and French and Mexicans, etc., so that we have this huge, truly, melting pot that we all learned about as kids so that we are the most ethnically diverse country on the planet. And maybe the right. least racist. One of the As a result, maybe the least racist. And uh, having experienced it in other places, right. absolutely. Yeah. I'm actually I'm struck by what you just said, Seth, because one of the things about this movement to, to distill all of what we think of as like sort of core Americana or the fruits of American culture into this label of whiteness is it does, in fact, like that very process academically erases the massive contributions of all other ethnicities, Correct. you know, whether we're talking about the Harlem Renaissance or uh, I, I don't know, all, all of the various. Uh, uh, good point. Pr- you know, all, all of the various traditions that have come here throughout the decades to build what is America. It's not a mono ethnic construct and, and never really was. Um, I'm going to ask you two to close out on this when we come back. I think Our pleasure. We'll be right back. She was Seth Liebson show. Thank you for joining us. I am Lewis Hallman here wrapping up the show with Hugh Hallman. Seth had to just bounce out for a, a quick moment. And we've been talking today about this permanent emergency, the notion that uh, the, corona pandem- the coronavirus pandemic is being uh, uh, extended and used as a perpetual, uh, shall we say, um, crisis for us to continually spend more money on, and, you know, reorient our society towards and otherwise sort of keep remaking the face of American society. And to me, in thinking about it, it is the greatest case that you can make to the sort of compassionate utopians of this world, those who really want to you know, do all of the good in the world in the most inefficient ways, uh, uh, whether it's raising the minimum wage or doing everything else, because we have spent six trillion dollars or will as, have spent six trillion shortly. Yeah, we'll have shortly spent six trillion dollars in a year after this this crisis has emerged just in the bailout, just in the stimulus. And of this, only about 15, 20 percent of that money has actually gone towards households. The rest of it has been the bribe that we, the American people, have had to pay in order to assist those among us. That is what we have been had to pay to big business, to connected interests, and all of the rest of these cronies uh, for the the privilege of maybe sending some bailout to help those in need. And You're talking so, about twelve hundred dollars per family, for example, the checks, the correct. original ones, and the new ones. And so we have to ask ourselves. How can this be the way? How is this the mechanism to do good? And why are we still relying on government to help us when we can help ourselves? Thank you for joining us today. It has been an absolute honor and a privilege to join Seth. And as always, God bless and class dismissed.